Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, talking to you about anything that relates to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports on research into the latest treatments and refinements in diagnosis of mental illness, along the way better informing the general public around the issues of mental health and psychiatry, and also trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. I appreciate your tuning in so much. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And again, want to give those of you who downloaded it from the iTunes store a shout out. Appreciate your support. This evening's show was pre-recorded for airing on April 22nd, 2015, and I, for one, have not been able to wait to get back with you again because of a certain story that came out last week since our last show, and that is that Tylenol may dull your emotions. Now, when I heard this, I'm like, Really? Something that's been around for so many decades, and only now some scientists are figuring out that it's supposed to affect your emotional state negatively? Well, of course, a story like that caught my ear. And when I heard about the way the research was done, contrasting that with the way the media reported the results of the research, I was like, this is perfect for my show. We have got to talk about this one. So I'll cut right to the chase. Do not put your Tylenol bottle away and switch to ibuprofen or Aleve. There may or may not be any number of things wrong with Tylenol, but at least it won't eat away at the lining of your stomach and cause gastric bleeding the way ibuprofen and naproxen, which is in the leave, can do. Now, let's take a look at this research, and I'll point out what I think are some flaws with it. Uh, they, the article about this says, Chances are, if you suffer from occasional aches and pains, you probably have a bottle of acetaminophen in your medicine cabinet. Chances are, almost everyone has a bottle of it, regardless. It's like aspirin used to be in the old days. But this pain reliever can help a headache, ease chronic joint or body pain, and reduce a fever. But apparently, most of us don't know that along with reducing physical pain, acetaminophen can or may also dull emotions. Now, this study was published in the journal Psychological Science. And it suggests that this popular drug could dampen a person's emotions, both good and bad emotions. And the speculation 
is that it may be related to the fact that pain travels from injury through nerve signals and affects serotonin and other chemicals that control emotional response. So in other words, the idea is, well, if you're dulling pain responses, some of the information goes through the same chemicals that mediate emotions, so you may be dulling some of those responses as well. On the surface, makes logical sense. Now, this study actually says that in addition to affecting negative emotions, it may also dull positive feelings as well. This paper reports the findings of two small studies. The first one involved 82 people, half of whom took 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol, while the other half got just an inert placebo. The researchers waited an hour, and then they showed the participants 40 photographs, many of which would typically elicit strong emotions, either positive or negative, such as photos of crying, malnourished children or young children playing with cats. What they found was that compared with people who took a placebo, those who had taken acetaminophen had a less strong reaction across the board to both the negative and positive images. The study didn't establish what the cause is, but we know that pain is not a local phenomenon. If you have pain in your knee, it's not just there. It affects nerve receptors there, but then that moves to nerve tissue, the central nervous system up through the spinal cord and into your brain. And it actually also does affect parts of the brain that affect emotion, but importantly, positive and negative emotions. So the idea is that if you relieve negative feelings, you may also blunt or dull or relieve, as it were, positive feelings as well. Now, for a second study, researchers showed 85 people the same pictures and asked how they felt. Those who took acetaminophen also reported reduced emotional reaction. They were also asked to report how much blue color they saw in each photograph, a non-emotional question, and in that case, both the acetaminophen and control groups reported the same. Well, that's supposed to show that the Tylenol is only having an effect on things that would affect emotions and not merely something that's devoid of emotion. Not all that elegant, if you ask me. While this research is still quite preliminary, and that's an understatement, it is worth paying attention to since the drug is so widely popular or at least it was until the results of this research uh, came out in the media. One in five people in the United States take acetaminophen at least one time each week. Unlike other over-the-counter painkillers like aspirin or ibuprofen or naproxen, acetaminophen is not 
a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, or NSAID, which means the drug most likely targets pain receptors in the body rather than inflammation. In addition to impacting emotions, long-term and frequent use of Tylenol may cause some physical health problems, such as liver failure. Currently, the United States Food and Drug Administration recommends a person take no more than 3,000 milligrams of acetaminophen within 24 hours or no more than two pills every six hours. <clears throat> well, I'm glad the article mentions one very important fact of Tylenol, that taking too much of it can be very tough on the liver. And I often get questions about psychiatric medications, um, questions such as, oh, is this going to be taxing to my liver, or aren't these medicines rough on your liver? Not at all. Uh, the vast majority of liver problems suffered by people in the United States, anyway, is because either they drink too much alcohol or they take too much Tylenol. Um, <clears throat> now, I do want to emphasize, having said that, that if you take the drug as it's instructed, uh, again, uh, like the FDA guidelines, no more than two tablets every six hours, you're not going to tax your liver by doing that. It's people who take excessive amounts that put themselves at risk for liver damage. Now let's get back to this notion that Tylenol may blunt or dull emotions. What this article I just reviewed with you doesn't say is that the research was done with Ohio State University undergraduates. And you see the conditions are, are very laboratory-like. They're looking at pictures that are designed to elicit either strongly positive or strongly negative emotions. And they're giving them Tylenol right before and seeing what their response is. Uh, these are very artificial conditions, obviously, and it's also a very homogeneous population as well. So while the findings may be interesting on one level, uh, certainly it doesn't come anywhere near representing what will happen to the average person in real life. <clears throat> uh, so if you are in pain and you're used to taking Tylenol and it's been effective for you in the past in treating your pain and didn't give you uncomfortable side effects, please do not take this media report about this research as anything seriously such that you said, well, Maybe I shouldn't take Tylenol this time because it might dull my emotions. No, uh, it's an interesting preliminary report only, <clears throat> uh, typically, in this case, overhyped by the media. Uh, a lot more work needs to be done to confirm these findings, and especially since they were not obtained in any kind of situation that approaches uh, real everyday life. Uh, you know, and this is a classic example of how the media reports the findings of medical research, distorts the message, creates a lot of hype, uh, a catchy 
soundbite, <clears throat> a splashy headline, but far from the whole picture. <clears throat> now, again, you have to keep in mind uh, there may be some basis to it, but it's just too soon to take this seriously. And again, keep in mind the risks of using the other pain relievers. Um, NSAIDs can damage the lining of the stomach, causing bleeding. Um, and they're also fairly taxing to the liver. If you take too much of them, uh, aspirin can cause ringing of the ears. You know, overall, as long as you don't misuse it, Tylenol has fewer side effects than the others. All right, we'll take a break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest news about the mind and the brain. Next up, we're going to talk about another exciting mental health related report that came out since we last got together, and that is that people may be less focused 
on recurrent bad feelings when taking probiotics. That's right. I think it was uh, last week or so that I first brought to you the information that someday probiotics may actually play a role in treating depression. Um, and, if, and the idea that this might actually affect mood and emotions and not just the microflora of your gut may sound bizarre or revolutionary, but uh, I definitely think that this is not just a bunch of hype uh, or bizarre quackery. I definitely think there's something to this. There have always been tremendous connections between the immune system and the brain that we know are there and have only begun to superficially uh, touch on and fathom. Um, And we're learning so much about how the entire microbiome of the human body affects our health. It seems entirely plausible. But let's take a look at what this research found. Uh, After four weeks of taking probiotics, people were less focused on bad feelings and experiences from the past. Uh, This is called rumination, uh, the tendency to dwell on uh, bad feelings, especially bad experiences from the past. Now, this uh, research comes from the Leiden Institute of Brain and Cognition. The study was published in the journal Brain Behavior and Immunity. Probiotics, if you don't already know what they are, are live microorganisms, which, when administered in adequate amounts, are fundamental in improving digestion and immune function. Researchers feel they were the first to investigate whether the administration of multi-species that is containing different strains of uh, probiotics for at least four weeks has a beneficial effect on the symptom of rumination. Rumination being recurrent thoughts about possible causes and consequences of one's distress. It's one of the most predictive vulnerability markers of depression. Persistent ruminative thoughts often precede and predict episodes of depression. And uh, negative and guilty ruminative thinking has always been one of the key criteria to make the diagnosis of major depressive disorder or clinical depression. Now, the researchers asked 40 healthy subjects to take to partake of this powder, which was mixed with lukewarm water or milk each day of the intervention. Half of the people received a placebo powder, while the other half received the probiotics mixture. People were invited to the lab twice, one time at the beginning of the intervention and the second time after four weeks when the intervention was completed. In both occasions, they were required to fill in a questionnaire indexing sensitivity or cognitive reactivity to depression. 
Now, compared to subjects who received the placebo intervention, participants who received the multi-species probiotics intervention showed significantly reduced ruminative thoughts. Even if preliminary, and they are, make no mistake, these results provide the first evidence that the intake of probiotics may help reduce negative thoughts associated with sad mood. As such, the findings shed an interesting new light on the potential of probiotics to serve as adjuvant or preventive therapy for depression, meaning they might they wouldn't likely be prescribed alone to treat depression, but to accompany other treatments for depression, such as psychotherapy and or antidepressant drugs, and perhaps to prevent recurring episodes of depression. Now, uh, to be fair, and you know, I didn't want to rip the first study we talked about in the earlier segment and then just praise this one. To be fair and balanced, uh, I should pick this one apart too. We're only talking about a very, very small sample size, okay, 20 people on the probiotic mixture and 20 on placebo. That's too low a number to really make any definitive findings. This is extremely preliminary. Uh, however, it is a very interesting, fascinating even idea. And if this could be expanded upon in a broader scale and uh, do things like actually uh, take specific measures, say rating scales of uh, ruminative thinking, which they do exist, actually. Um, that's another thing. Looking at just this ruminative thinking, that's one very narrow symptom type, and it is an important indicator of de depression, don't get me wrong, but it is a very narrow way of looking at the illness. Uh, I think that it would be great to see the research expand to looking at multiple other symptoms of depression and see if the probiotics could bring about any relief from those symptoms as well. Uh, but nonetheless, a very intriguing start down the road of investigating what the benefits of taking probiotics would be for people who suffer from depression or perhaps even a way to prevent it even more exciting. Stay tuned. I will continue to bring you regular updates on this issue. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a triumph for the pharmaceutical industry over trial lawyers who think they're going to get a cozy settlement at the expense of both the pharmaceutical industry and unwitting patients who unfortunately had bad outcomes that were not the fault of the pharmaceutical industry. And lest you think that I'm some sort of pharmaceutical industry proponent or apologist, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but you know, when, when it's clear that a patient is, is trying or to blame a drug for something wrong happening that the drug company 
does not deserve responsibility for, then uh, I have to point that out as well. It is Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. They scored a key victory last Friday when they were cleared of liability in the first United States trial involving claims that its antidepressant drug Zoloft, which, by the way, for many, many years now has been available in a generic form, the generic chemical name Zoloft is sertraline. Uh, there were claims that Zoloft could cause birth defects in children born to women who take the drug while pregnant. Plaintiff Kristen Pisante claimed that Pfizer failed to warn that using Zoloft during pregnancy could cause birth defects and sought damages after her son was born with a rare, serious congenital heart problem. Following a week-long trial in St. Louis, Missouri, jurors deliberated briefly before clearing Pfizer of liability. Pesante had sought both compensatory and punitive damages, accusing Pfizer of downplaying Zoloft's risks in order to boost sales. Well, as someone who has followed the history of this product very closely from the beginning and has prescribed many hundreds of prescriptions for it, I have to say that there has always been very transparent information in the package insert or prescribing information for Zoloft ever since it came out that it is not recommended for pregnancy, that it is a category C in pregnancy, which means that there may be health risks and it's not recommended in pregnancy. Uh, so for anyone to turn around and say that, well, they downplayed the risk to boost sales, not true. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration vets safety information from any medication extremely carefully before it's brought on the market, and any drug brought to market must have information on pregnancy and nursing in the prescribing information so that doctors and patients may know, look, if you're going to be pregnant or nurse, you shouldn't be on this. And if a patient takes it anyway, then that's a decision they make along with the prescribing doctor. Now, hundreds of such lawsuits saying Zoloft can lead to cardiac and other birth defects have been filed in the United States and uh, in the United States state and federal courts. Perhaps you've seen the infomercials or commercials on TV uh, where the lawyers are soliciting people to call and say that they've been injured somehow or had a baby with birth defects and potentially be eligible for a settlement or a uh, class action lawsuit. Now, while not binding on the other cases, the verdict in this particular case is very significant because Passante's case was the first one selected by plaintiffs for the trial and featured much of the same medical evidence and theories underpinning other cases across the country. 
And her 2012 lawsuit, took this long to crank its way through the courts, said that Pfizer touted Zoloft as a treatment for depression in pregnant women, which it did not, that had a lower risk of side effects than similar drugs. They did not. She said she took the drug during her first trimester and was not aware at the time of the risks. Well, we'll get back after this break with more implications of this case and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking about how a uh, pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, was cleared of charges that they promoted Zoloft for use in pregnant women and. Uh, was thought to be liable for a woman's baby's birth defects. Well, if I'm saying that they should have been cleared and didn't have liability, and indeed they were cleared, then who did? Well, if indeed someone told this woman that this was a safe treatment for her to take while pregnant and that it would not harm her baby, I point the finger squarely at the prescribing doctor. Shame on that doctor if that doctor didn't tell her, look, you know, I think you need to take this, but we don't know if it's safe for the baby or not. It is incumbent upon the prescribing doctor to fully disclose that there are risks, that there are unknown risks, uh, and the, the, that there also are risks of not treating 
depression, uh, such as postpartum depression, depression during pregnancy, uh, all of which can result in the growth of the fetus being impaired or retarded in some way, and also uh, can affect mother-infant bonding right after delivery, and all of this in turn can affect development in the newborn. But all of these different risks should have been discussed with this woman by her doctor. Now, the article about this case doesn't address that issue one way or the other. Now, as for Pfizer, they disputed any scientific link between Zoloft and birth defects, and they said that their position is supported by individual medical groups, including the American Heart Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The uh, drug was approved by the FDA as part of a widely prescribed group of antidepressants known as the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Now, in 2010, GlaxoSmithKline paid an undisclosed amount of money to settle some United States lawsuits linking a different SSRI, Paxil, to birth defects. And that's an interesting case because there was one study that showed that there was a higher rate of cardiac birth defects in babies born to mothers who took Paxil. And this is what spawned all the lawsuits and this supposedly damning evidence in that study is what prompted GlaxoSmithKline to just go ahead and settle some of these lawsuits. However, a subsequent analysis of the same data that was used to create that damning evidence against Paxil revealed that the initial results were just a, a statistical quirk of how the analysis was run. And when someone else took a different, more objective look at the data, they realized that there was no greater rate of cardiac malformations in babies born to women who took Paxil than in the general population uh, where the mothers were not on any medication at all. The bottom line is there really is no scientific evidence that SSRIs increase the risk of cardiac birth defects above the background rate in the general population. Furthermore, <clears throat> there are more than adequate warnings about the risks of use of SSRIs in pregnancy and nursing, and in fact that they should not be used. So there really was no basis for this lawsuit. Now again, this is just the first round, and perhaps the lawyers will refine their tactics for subsequent cases. They're going to be tried in different jurisdictions with different trials and judges, etc. So we'll see what happens. The article says the next such a Zoloft trial, as it were, is scheduled to take place later this year in state court 
in Philadelphia. So we'll see. All right, next up on tonight's show. Well, if you know that you have sleep apnea or you've been told that you snore loudly and you've not gotten it checked out um, and you're not getting it treated, you're not getting it checked out if, you th- if you've been told you may have it or you're not getting it treated if you know you have sleep apnea, you do either at your peril because some new research found that snoring and sleep apnea are linked to earlier memory decline in the elderly. In other words, older people who have sleep apnea, which can be marked by heavy snoring, tend to begin experiencing cognitive decline, that would mean worsening memory, about 10 years earlier than those without the disorder or those who have sleep apnea and use a breathing machine to treat it. All right, so... It's not just if you have sleep apnea or you snore and you're not treating your sleep apnea or you're not investigating the snoring and getting a diagnosis and treatment of sleep apnea that you put yourself at risk for 10-year earlier onset of memory problems. Uh, This is contrasted with people who have sleep apnea and treat it properly as well. Now, among older people who developed mild cognitive impairment, or Alzheimer's disease, those with untreated obstructive sleep breathing began to experience mental loss at an average of age 77 compared to a ripe old age of 90 for those without breathing problems. Now, they didn't find that snoring causes dementia, but In those people with sleep apnea that weren't treating it, again, the age of decline of memory was earlier. Now, such sleep disorder breathing is very common among the elderly, affecting nearly 53% of men and more than 26% of women. Most people think sleep apnea only affects males that are obese and snore in middle age, but it is much more common in late life. Late-life sleep apnea is under-recognized and under-diagnosed, and these results may help raise awareness, but should not be alarming to most people. The study did not establish cause and effect, and Alzheimer's disease itself can cause sleep problems. But if sleep issues do lead to cognitive decline, it could be due to oxygen deprivation or due to sleep fragmentation. The apneas, or episodes of not breathing, produce arousals and wake you up so you don't get nice restorative sleep. The study adds to growing evidence that obstructive sleep apnea is not only a severe and serious disease associated with cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, but also brain health and neurocognitive health. Since sleep apnea is so underdiagnosed, Many people in the group who said they did not have it probably did, which could make the true difference in cognitive decline onset even larger. Loud and frequent snoring, choking, or gasping during sleep 
finding that sleep is not restorative and daytime fatigue can be signs of sleep apnea. You are trying desperately to sleep and unfortunately are not able to sleep and breathe at the same time. Adrenaline levels, stress, and inflammation increase. It's not surprising that these people have many downstream effects. It is also possible that sleep apnea does not itself cause cognitive decline and that those who pursue treatment and use a CPAP machine tend to live overall healthier lives than people who do not. Many people find CPAP machines difficult to use and do not stick with them. But CPAP is not the only treatment option. If your partner tells you you snore, then you should maybe talk to your physician. It is much easier to diagnose sleep apnea today than it once was. When a patient comes to the doctor's office with memory complaints, sleep apnea should be one of the diagnoses considered. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you are worried that you may have sleep apnea, how you can make a fairly reliable self-diagnosis at home without going to a sleep lab and spending the night with the help of your bed partner. If your bed partner has observed the following pattern, even just once, then you can take it to the bank that you've got sleep apnea and all that remains is for you to go to the sleep lab to spend the night, confirm the diagnosis so that you can get the CPAP machine to treat it. The CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, keeps the airway open, keeps the snoring from happening. Okay, here's what it's like. There is loud snoring, which is interrupted by periods of dead silence during which you're not breathing. That can last, say, 10 or 20 seconds. The silences are, in turn, interrupted by an even louder gulping, gasping, snorting type sound when your brain kicks in and says, no, we are going to take a breath, whether you like it or not. And then you go back to the loud snoring. Okay, so if your bed partner has ever seen that happen to you, even if it's just once, you pretty much have sleep apnea and you better go get it diagnosed and treated. So again, it's loud snoring, interrupted by dead silence, then the loud snorting, gasping, gulping sound, back to the loud snoring. Now, while the idea of sleeping with a CPAP machine, a mask over your nose and mouth, attached to a tube to this machine at the bedside table, might not seem all that appealing, uh, I would suggest that it is the best and most reliable treatment by far. Do not have the surgery. It's a barbaric permanently altering procedure that doesn't permanently fix the symptoms and uh, there are appliances that purportedly help with sleep apnea but they're not as effective as CPAP. All right time to take another commercial break we'll be back with more after that you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, you know those wristband activity monitors like Fitbit and so many other brands? Well, there is a doctor who is doing some research, and it's right here at Georgia, actually. Uh, It's Dr. Vaughn McCall. W. Vaughn McCall, he is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Health Behavior at the Medical College of Georgia, at Georgia Regents University. And he says that he has found a way that this wristband activity monitor measures rest and activity schedule, and it may help predict response to antidepressants. Remarkable if that finding held true a wristband that records motion throughout a 24-hour cycle may be an inexpensive, safe way to determine which patients with major depressive disorder will respond best to commonly prescribed antidepressant drugs, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those are drugs like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Celexa, and Lexapro. Now, these are the mainstay for medication treatment for depression, but patients and their physicians may go through many months, different doses, and different medications, as well as other types of medications, trying to get results. The study in the Journal of Psychiatric Research indicates that this simple wristband may help 
by identifying those commonly referred to as night owls who appear to be the best responders to SSRIs. Now, <clears throat> he is quick to note that the study sample was small, just 58 patients, and the findings are very preliminary. But what his findings suggest is that night owls are the group most likely to be depressed and also look like the patients who are most, most likely to respond. The larks are more likely to need two drugs. Now, what are night owls and what are larks? Maybe you already know what a night owl is, someone who likes to stay up late and sleep in, right? Well, a lark is the opposite. A lark is someone who likes to go to bed early and get up early. Now, it makes sense that night owls are good responders since SSRIs tend to shift rest time to a more usual middle-of-the-night time frame. Larks, on the other hand, might better respond to a different class of drugs, such as bupropion or Welbutrin, which, unlike SSRIs, targets dopamine and norepinephrine, providing a slight stimulation that may help larks readjust their lowest activity times, which should correspond with deep sleep times, to slightly later in the day. Now, we all tend to be morning people or not, and environmental factors, such as work schedules, can also push us in one direction or another. Excessive exposure to light, particularly in the evening hours, whether from a lamp, a television, or a touchscreen tablet can further shift the rest cycle to later in the 24-hour day. While there is no good data on what percentage of the population are night owls versus larks, the 58 patients in the study were about half and half. Those who had the latest period of rest, close to 5 a.m., were the best responders to the SSRIs. Since there currently is no lab test to tell physicians which drug should work best for a patient on the first or subsequent tries, <clears throat> McCall typically starts with the most inexpensive generic SSRI, anticipating that it may take several months and attempts to get to desired relief. In fact, it may take more than four or six weeks just to be sure a drug has failed. Major depressive disorder means depression is severe enough to affect quality of life and function. Patients may have dissociated from life and have overt symptoms such as problems sleeping too much or too little, eating too much or too little, loss of interest in sex, thoughts of suicide, and others. You're treating patients both to relieve their misery and to improve their function. But our treatments are unreliable. We go through a trial and error process, and people suffer for a long time. The availability of SSRIs nearly 30 years ago was a welcome relief to patients and physicians alike. 
while previous drugs, such as the tricyclic antidepressant Elevil and many others, had the benefit of helping patients sleep, a weak supply of it could become a lethal overdose. The comparative safety of SSRIs was great, but these drugs don't help patients sleep. The National Institute of Mental Health's STAR-D study of nearly 3,000 patients with major depressive disorder, published in 2006, laid out the not-so-terrific success rates of depression treatment. The study showed about one-third of patients become symptom-free with the first drug they try, while many patients require more than one drug and even different types of drugs to get their depression in remission. The STAR-D study indicated that if the first SSRI fails, about one in four of those who chose to take a second drug will get better. Of those who add a second medication to an SSRI, one in three will get better, but it remains unclear whether switching medication or adding a second drug is the best route. The results led the NIMH to call for more personalized treatment approaches for these patients, including the identification of biomarkers that could, get, that could better guide drug selection and effectiveness. Now, we're still waiting for those biomarkers, but this rest activity pattern of patients may be one of the first biomarkers to emerge. <clears throat> and you don't have to do blood tests, but simply to have them wear this wristband activity monitor. So you know what? I'm going to try to apply this to my own patients and see what happens, uh, see if any of them are, are already using one. And if they are, try to take advantage of the data they get from it. Or even if someone can tell reliably that they definitely are a night owl versus a lark, even without the uh, activity wristband monitor, uh, who knows? That information alone potentially could be enough to at least narrow down the choices between SSRI or not. Interesting stuff. Hope that we hear more about it. Now, everyone's concerned about their brain aging, right? We talk about this all the time. We talk about people concerned about cognitive decline. We talked about that in relation to sleep apnea in a previous segment. Uh, people worrying about dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So here's a new report that urges ways to keep your brain sharp. Those lost car keys that were an annoyance in your 30s can spark major anxiety in your 60s. Turns out that's pretty normal. The brain ages just like the rest of your body. But here are some steps Americans can take to keep sharp in their senior years. The prestigious Institute of Medicine examined what scientists know about cognitive aging, changes in mental functioning as we get older. This isn't a disease like Alzheimer's, but it's a natural process, and it's not always bad. <clears throat> the brain ages in all of us, but there's wide variability in how it happens. Staying sharp is a big concern. Even subtle slowdowns can affect daily life, 
making seniors more vulnerable to financial scams, driving problems, or other difficulties. Many older adults process information more slowly, have more difficulty multitasking. What's called working memory, the brain's short-term storage, often declines with age, but long-term memory remains intact, even if it takes longer to recall someone's name. Older adults are using, losing nearly $3 billion a year, directly and indirectly, to financial fraud. Now, someone experiencing memory difficulty should be checked by a doctor. With Alzheimer's disease, nerve cells die. With normal cognitive aging, they don't die, they just don't work as well. The best advice to stay sharp as you get older, be physically active. The sooner you start, the better, but it's never too late. Here are some other recommendations from the Institute of Medicine. Control high blood pressure and diabetes and don't smoke. Those are key risk factors for heart disease. What's bad for your heart is bad for your brain, like I've always preached to you. Some medications commonly taken by seniors, including certain anxiety or sleep drugs, antihistamines, bladder drugs, and older antidepressants, can fog the brain. So ask about yours. Keep socially and intellectually active. Get enough sleep. Be careful of products that claim to improve cognitive function. There's no evidence that vitamins and dietary supplements like ginkgo biloba help. And the jury's still out on whether computer-based brain training games do any good. There's also should be more research into normal cognitive aging, which has been left behind somewhat by the study of diseases like Alzheimer's, and more education of doctors about their patients' risks. For example, hospitalized seniors are at increased risk for delirium, sudden confusion and agitation that can cause lingering cognitive decline after they go home, but there are ways to prevent it. Also, government agencies and communities should consider cognitive aging as they set policies and programs. There's a California law to protect older adults who are signing up for reverse mortgages and a Michigan plan to improve older driver safety through such steps as adjusting traffic lights to counter glare. Yeah, the article makes an excellent point, I think, that these effects of cognitive aging on the elderly and impaired memory make them uniquely vulnerable to financial fraud and scams. So you combine those vulnerabilities with a population who, in many cases, have accumulated a lifetime of wealth, got a recipe for disaster. Have to wrap up tonight's show quick. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.